We open the Holy Scriptures to 2 Peter chapter 3. We will read together the entire chapter. This second epistle, beloved, now write, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away, with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. The basis of this chapter and also the rest of the scriptures, we have the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism, and we are in Lord's Day 22, up to the second question and answer, number 58. 
which we consider this morning. Question 58 asks, What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? That since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein. Forever. Beloved in the Lord, for 19 Sundays now, we have been walking through the Apostles' Creed, piece by piece, article by article, examining the different facets of the diamond that is our Christian faith, being stunned by all of their beauty, being comforted by the truth of Jesus Christ in each of those articles. Now we come to the last article of the Apostolic Creed, which ends, Amen. And what a hearty Amen we say in our hearts to these articles that we believe. And what a glorious last article concludes the list of our fundamental beliefs. We believe the life everlasting. Amen. The glorious period that ends the Apostles' Creed. No more than a period, the article that describes for us the effect of everything that came before in the Creed. The outcome, the result, the infallible fruit of all that God the Father has done through Jesus Christ and applies to us by His Holy Spirit. Life everlasting. Amen. And that's where the creed ends because that's the end of the Christian life. The end in the sense of the goal. That's where all of the articles of our faith point us. That's where the end of our pilgrimage is. That's where we are going. Indeed, that's what we have a beginning of already now through the work of Jesus Christ. The life everlasting. That's what's ahead. That's what awaits. That's the end of our faith. That's what we look forward to. That's the truth every Christian carries with him or her each day. And that's The truth of salvation, which, as we sang, sets our souls on high. We can only look through a glass darkly. The Scriptures, we're familiar with that phrase, having gone through 1 Corinthians 13 recently. The Scriptures are like a mirror. And as glorious a reflection of God and His truth as we receive in the mirror of the Scriptures, it is, from a certain perspective, still just a dim reflection We have just a dim reflection. We see everlasting life through a glass darkly. And yet that dim reflection is so glorious. It is enough to bring us as it were to the threshold of heaven. And rejoice the soul. So just like the first question and answer in Lord's Day 22. The catechism's focus is on comfort. And that's the focus we want to have this morning. As we enter into what the scripture has to say about the life everlasting. Let it be for our comfort. 
let it set our souls on high this morning. The life of the world to come. That's the theme. The life of the world to come. Well, first notice that everlasting life is perfect life. Secondly, that that perfect life will be lived in God's blessed realm. And then lastly, we have a beginning of this life already now. How do you describe everlasting life? Well, the catechism starts us off by describing it this way. After this life, I shall inherit perfect salvation. Salvation from sin and death. Salvation which brings us into life. Everlasting life is fullest and perfect life. The perfection of everlasting life is something that the child of God experiences in his soul at the moment of his or her death when he or she passes from this veil of tears into the Father's house of many mansions. And that connects the instruction of question and answer 58 back to question and answer 57. Last week we saw that at the moment of death, my soul will enter into the blessed life and rest of heaven. You'll notice the parallelism in answer 57 and answer 58. Answer 57 says, after this life, my soul shall be immediately taken up to Christ. And there begins the experience of everlasting life in fullness, in richness, in perfection in the soul. The work of Christ has turned death into heaven's front door. And at that door, the soul leaves all its heavy baggage behind forever. Death, now conquered by Christ, now enslaved by Christ, is wielded by Christ as the last instrument of the soul's sanctification. Death, under Christ's control, is the scalpel in his hand with which he cuts the soul's last ties to sin, to the old man, cuts all the straps of the baggage that that soul has carried throughout its life in this world, All the baggage of sorrow, crying, pain, and every former thing. It's all left at the door. And Christ takes the soul through the door. The soul now set at liberty, freed from sin, freed from pain and sorrow. Now completely and permanently free. And now with Christ. In perfection. Passing through the doorway of death in a moment, the believer's soul stands consciously in the fellowship hall of the Father's house of many mansions, amidst the company of the spirits of just men made perfect. And what a great company of saints that will be, and yet the soul's eyes will fix themselves especially on one alone, Jesus Christ, who will be there, the head to receive his member. Psalm 17 verse 15 may very well be the words of your soul when you first go through the door and get to heaven. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied, except you won't use the future tense. You'll say, I behold thy face in righteousness and I am satisfied. 
the soul of the believer will see Christ. And with no more sin, there will be nothing to separate. Communion, unhindered, unobstructed, dwelling with Him. Perfect life. Immediately after we pass from this life. Perfection in the soul. That all by itself, the life of the soul on the other side of death's doorway is something that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive. That perfection is something we can scarcely wrap our minds around because it is so far removed from our experience here in this veil of tears. And that's one reason why the Bible often describes everlasting life in negative terms. And what I mean by that is it describes everlasting life by focusing on what's not there. The absence of crying, pain, suffering, and sin. Because those are the things that define our experience here below. And we can grasp something of what everlasting life will be like when we think about the total absence of all of those things. That alone is hard to comprehend. But that's just scratching the surface. Everlasting life is not just the absence of all that is bad, but it is the total, fullest presence of all that is good. And we can't wrap our minds around that. But just trying to sets our souls on high. But there's much, much more. This isn't a sermon On question and answer 57. We talked about those things last week. There's much, much more. Even when our souls get to heaven. And we are made perfect in our souls. The best is yet to come. As rich and full as everlasting life in our souls will be. That life is not yet life to the absolute fullest. It is Inheriting perfect salvation because our sin, our guilt, and all of its misery will be gone. All of the baggage of this life will be left at heaven's door. But part of me is not there yet. Here's the resurrection of the body. Remember last week as well. My body is an essential part of me. It's part of the whole of me. And the fullness of everlasting life will be experienced not just in the soul, but in the body. And that means not just in a spiritual state, but in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. There is much more to come, even after my soul is taken up to Christ its head. Our salvation is not fully complete, nor is everlasting life at its peak. Until our bodies are raised and reunited with our souls, and we are made whole again. And everlasting life is not brought to its peak, to its fullest, until the whole body of Christ is made complete and is gathered together and inherits glory together. There is yet greater fullness to come, even after I get to heaven. And that absolute fullness of everlasting life will come on the day of Christ when He raises the bodies of His people, when He ushers in the world that is to come and brings us into that world, into the age that will have no end where we shall live with Him forever. That's what's 
coming. The resurrection of the dead not only makes me whole again, but through the resurrection of the dead, Jesus will translate me and you and all of His people from the order of this world which will pass away into the order of the age to come. And we will become a part of the new creation which will be the setting of life everlasting. The resurrection on the day of Christ will bring us through the final door. Into the world to come. So what can we say? What can we say about the fullness of everlasting life? That's what this question and answer in the catechism is focusing on. 57 talked about the enjoyment of everlasting life in my soul. 57 talked about the event of the resurrection of my body. And why that's necessary. And why that's my ultimate hope. Now the focus of 58 is on everlasting life after the resurrection of the body in the world to come. What can we say about what that will be like? The catechism says a lot by saying so little. What words can be found to capture the glory Of the life everlasting. It's not just our vocabulary that fails us. Our inventory of thoughts and concepts. Falls far short of ever being able to express the fullness of the eternal weight of glory. That is being prepared for us by our Savior Jesus Christ. How do you describe the indescribable? And that's why the catechism doesn't try to do that. Rather, the catechism contents itself with simply quoting Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man to conceive. And then the verse goes on, what God has prepared for those who love Him. By saying so little, the catechism actually says so little. Much. Beyond this, we can only stammer a few inadequate words. We can stammer those words because the Bible gives us some words to describe what the life everlasting will be. The Bible, though through a glass darkly, gives us glimpses of eternal life. And those few stammered words, those few glimpses, are enough to set our souls on high and give us a sense of that eternal joy that abides in the heart that we carry with us through this pilgrimage until we arrive at the life everlasting. What will the fullness be like Well, we can start here. The fullness will be like the covenant made perfect. In fact, not just like, that's what the fullness will be. We can understand the fullness of what everlasting life will be when we remind ourselves of what God's singular purpose in all of history, in all of time, with all things is. God's singular purpose is the glorification of Himself. 
in the most wonderful way. The glorification of himself through the establishment of a covenant with a chosen people whom he redeems in Jesus Christ. Whom he draws to himself. Whom he makes his children, his sons and daughters, his heirs. And whom he is pleased to eternally bless. Those whom he has made to be the vessels of his grace and mercy. Who will be as cups filled to the brim and overflowing forevermore with all of the goodness of the only fountain of all good. God is pleased to glorify himself by making you such a vessel that he will fill forever with the overflowing bounty of his love, grace, and goodness in communion with him. That's the covenant. The covenant is a a relationship of love, friendship, and fellowship. God being our God, taking us to be his people and living together, living together. That's really the essence of life. Life is not just existing. Life is living in relationship with one that you love and one who loves you. Enjoying fellowship. Walking and talking together. And that's what everlasting life will be. That's God's purpose. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the catechism, Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3 describes the fall of man. But Lord's Day 3 also gives us one of the catechism's beautiful descriptions of God's purpose in all things. From Lord's Day 3, the first question and answer. God created man good that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. That is God's purpose. And that is the essence of everlasting life. And that's what everlasting life will be. With God. Heartily loving Him. Living with Him in eternal happiness. And it being our meat and delight every day to glorify and praise Him. The image of Christ will be fully restored in us. We will be restored in righteousness so that... All that we are is in harmony with His will. We agree with His will. And there's nothing in us that disagrees. We will be restored in holiness, in purity. Consecration to Him. And restored in knowledge such that we know Him. Not just with the head, but with the heart. The knowledge of a perfect love. And as restored image bearers, we will be restored friend-servants. Love our God and delight to live with Him and to employ our hands in His service. That's the covenant fulfilled. And the covenant fulfilled is life everlasting at its peak. And Jesus will be the center of it, Jesus will be the core of everlasting life. Emmanuel. Forever, God with us, God in our flesh, God in glorified human flesh. That's why Revelation 21 22 says there won't be a temple in eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth because the Lamb Himself will be the temple. 
The incarnate Christ in all of His glory will be the temple. He will be God with us. In Him we will see the invisible God. We will see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, we will walk with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And the fellowship and eternal happiness we have there will so far exceed Even the glory that Adam and Eve had in Eden. Eden will pale in comparison to life everlasting. That's why the best is yet to come. But while we're talking about God's covenant and its fulfillment being the essence of everlasting life. Allowing us to catch a glimpse of the fullness of that life. We mustn't forget the horizontal dimension of God's covenant. God's covenant is first of all a vertical relationship. The individual believer's relationship with God, his Father, her Savior. But our union with our head, our covenant relationship with God, brings us into connection and relationship with those Others who are united to the same Savior, the body of Christ. And so life everlasting in its perfection and in all of its fullness will be the perfection of the communion of the saints. The covenant on the horizontal plane. God dwelling not just with me, but dwelling with us. And not just me with God, but us with God. And us together with God. And together with one another in perfection. God said, when he established his covenant with Abraham, he made it very personal. I make my covenant between me and thee. But God makes his covenant not only with individuals, but with a people And every individual with whom he makes his covenant, he makes a part of his people. He saves a people. He saves a body. And a people and a body as the co-heirs of the grace of life will inherit everlasting life. Perfect salvation together, together. Psalm 68 verse 6 says, God setteth the solitary in families. The covenant of grace, the communion of the saints, the body of Christ, is the everlasting family that will endure for eternity. And so we see part of what belongs to the essence of the life everlasting is relationship of love and friendship with one another. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. That's part of why the greatest of all these is love. The experience of life everlasting will be this. Perfect love for all my brothers and sisters in Christ. And their perfect love for me. And in the context of that perfect love, there will be perfect communion. All God's children will be under one roof and they will all get along perfectly. All His children who in this world fought and called each other names and thought they were so smart for doing so 
will have left their sin behind at heaven's front door, will be reconciled, their relationships purged of all the dross of sin, and they will be made perfect in love. No more relationships broken by sin. All mended and healed and restored. Perfect love that casts out all fear. We will know God and be known of Him. And we will know one another and be known. Perfectly. Fully. No more hiding. No more shame. No more embarrassment, no more resentment, no more bitterness, only fellowship in love untouched by sin, relationships which are ever deepening and more rich, and a constant source of newfound delight. That's the life of the world to come. The covenant. All its fullness. The meditation upon those truths give us opportunity to consider a couple of questions that sometimes come up in connection with the life everlasting. The first of those questions is this. In, in the world to come, will we remember our past lives in this world? And the biblical answer is Yes. Sometimes there is that idea that upon our entrance into the life everlasting, there is a kind of brainwash so that all of our memories are removed, erased, and we have no idea what happened in this life. We don't remember anything or anyone. But that idea does not find support in Scripture. In fact, it really runs contrary to the idea of everlasting life. I, you, shall inherit perfect salvation. Not somebody else. And your memories and the experiences that God sovereignly used to shape you as a person are part of you. If those things are erased, you are no longer you. And it does not glorify God for someone other than you to inherit perfect salvation. Who you were on earth is who you will be forever. And this earthly life is not just a trial run. It's not something God has us go through and then He's going to scrap it and make us forget it so that it serves no purpose. But every step of this earthly pilgrimage and absolutely everything that happens here, even though often we don't understand how or why, everything is designed by God to prepare us for our place in glory. And everything in this life will in some marvelous way serve augment the glory of the life everlasting. The pilgrimage to heaven serves a purpose. And when we are there, we will be able to look back and see how everything to that point served the eternal happiness of there in everlasting life. And that's all for God's glory. Think about it. How would God be glorified if His sheep 
had no memory of how their good shepherd led them through the valley of the shadow of death to the house of the Lord forever. Remembering journey past augments eternal glory present. We'll remember. and We'll see the purpose and the significance of this life like never before. And it will serve our eternal happiness. No memory of this life will in any way taint that happiness. But will serve to increase it. And that, that fits. When Jesus was raised from the dead. He was not raised with a wiped mind. He remembered. In fact he still bore the scars of his crucifixion. And very likely he will bear them to all eternity. Because those scars are marks of glory. They are visible signs of the love of the good shepherd for his sheep. He will not be ashamed of those scars. Those scars will in no way taint his glory. But in fact they augment his glory as the victorious Christ. And so it will be with our lives. With our bodies. We are raised and inherit glory. This life has a purpose. And the practical application is. Whatever you are going through beloved. Even if you cannot see the purpose or the good. Sermon last Sunday night. If you're in the lowest pit. Darkness. God has a purpose. And God is accomplishing his good purpose with it. And one day you will see. And give him praise. A life everlasting. Second question. That believers sometimes ask and wrestle with. Will my relationships, my friendships that God has given me in this life carry over into heavenly glory? Or will those things be erased? And the same biblical principle applies here. Relationships are God's gift. The body of Christ put together here. Serves the life of the body of Christ perfected there. It doesn't make sense that God scraps everything here. And starts completely from from scratch there. No, here is a preparation for there. And all of the relationships, the love that God cultivates between saints and fellow believers here in this world. Is something that carries on into glory. When you get to heaven, you're not going to lose your friendships or your relationships. Now we understand. Things will be changed. This my body will be raised. This very same body. Yet it will be marvelously changed. And transfigured and adapted for heavenly life. And so it will be with our human relationships. Certain forms that relationships took in this world. Will pass away. Because they belong to the order of this present world. For example. Husband and wife. Parent and child. Jesus teaches there will not be marriage in heaven. That form of relationship passes away. The relationship that exists for all eternity is brother and sister in Christ. The only father in heaven will be God our father. But the love. The deep friendship that God cultivated by means of those earthly forms. We have no reason to think that that is erased when we get to glory. And there's a comfort. There's a comfort 
to those here who have lost a loved one, a spouse, a child, a friend. When you get to heaven, it's not as if they're going to have no idea who you are. Or everything that you've had together in your relationship is gone. No. That relationship will be there. But just like your body, gloriously transfigured and perfected so that your relationship is better than it ever was before. The relationships that God establishes now in the body of Christ are something that are meant to last forever. Not be scrapped. And then made again from scratch. Let that be a comfort to us again. This life is not without purpose. It is the time of preparation for the life everlasting. Third and final question. What are we going to do? What are we going to do in eternity future in the life everlasting? And the last, the last part of answer 58 explains that to us in just a few words. And that to praise God therein forever. There's the catechism's concise summary of the activity of everlasting life. Everlasting life will be everlastingly praising God. Undoubtedly that means it will be a life full of song. Perfect song. Joyful song to the praise of our God. You read the book of Revelation and how many times do we find the church in heaven around the throne singing praises to God. Things will be different. Because as 1 Corinthians 13 taught us, those things that are in part will pass away. There will be no more need for the Bible. There will be no more preaching. Because we will be made perfect. Perfect in knowledge. But everlasting life will be an unending doxology. While preaching may pass away, doxology will never pass away. But let us not think that that means that everlasting life is going to be an eternal worship service. That worship service will be much more than singing in a choir or sitting in a pew. That worship service will encompass our entire life and being. We will live with God and all of the fullness of life, all of the fullness of perfect life, all of the fullness of perfect communion will be an act of worship. You see, as saints made perfect, we will no longer be wrestling with selfishness, self-worship, a desire for our own will, but everything we think, say, do, and desire will be an act of worship. All that we are and all that we do will praise God and glorify Him. And so everlasting life is going to be a life brimming with activity, yet never exhausting. We will worship God as His restored image bearers and friend servants, serving Him. And if you want a glimpse of the activity of everlasting life, look back at the beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Cultivating the creation, exercising dominion over the creation, ruling as king and queen under God, dressing and keeping the garden, using their hands and their gifts. So it will be an everlasting life, but far, far better. We will be busy 
in the most fulfilling activity, satisfied daily in God's service, yet never tiring, never exhausted. And instead of two trees in the midst of the garden, we will have Christ in the midst of us. In everlasting life, there will never be a dull moment. Moment. So does that mean time? Yes. There will be time in everlasting life, but not as we experience it now. It will be changed, but there will still be time. And and this is why God alone is eternal. God alone has no beginning. We will always have a beginning. We will always have a past, a present, and a future. It's part and parcel of being a creature that we inhabit time. We, in everlasting life, do not become God. We do not take on the attributes of God, God's eternality. God alone is outside of, above time. Time is His creature. We are His creatures. And we will forever inhabit that house called time. But time in everlasting life will be different. We will experience it differently. How exactly, we cannot say. It will be life that began, but has no end. We sang that time is like an ever-rolling stream. But in everlasting life, it will no longer bear all its sons away. Rather, the ever-rolling stream of time will gently carry us into ever-deeper riches of eternal happiness with God, into ever-deeper enjoyment of His inexhaustible goodness. The passage of endless ages will not wear us down. Time will no longer ravage. Instead, it will renew. Think about that, and we can't comprehend that. Because here, the passage of time ravages. But there, it will only renew evermore. God's mercies are new for us every morning here. And there, the delights of God's fellowship and life everlasting will be new every morning through the passage of endless ages. Truly, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive what God has prepared. But now more briefly, having looked at the essence of everlasting life, perfect life, we want to see another important dimension of that life, namely this, that everlasting life will be lived somewhere Just as time will be different, but still exist, because to be a creature is to be in time, only God is outside of time, the same can be said of space. Creatures inhabit space. We are only in one place at one time, and that will continue. The proof of it is Jesus has a resurrected, glorified body that is still only in one place at one time. But our experience of space will be different. In marvelous ways. Everlasting life will be lived. In the most wonderful space. A blessed. Most blessed realm. 
that God will create to be His dwelling place with His people. And the blessed realm in which we will live everlasting life is, as 2 Peter 3 teaches us, the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 13 of 2 Peter 3, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so the same principle applies here to the creation as applied to our bodies. God did not create our bodies, God did not create this earthly life to be scrapped and then start over from scratch. So too this creation. Now, 2 Peter 3 speaks about the destruction of this present creation. Verse 7, for example, says, The heavens and earth that are now are reserved unto fire on the day of Jesus Christ and at His second coming. And verses 10, 11, and 12 speak about how on that last day, after Jesus has raised His people, the heavens will be on fire. They will dissolve. They will pass away. The elements that make up this physical universe will melt in fervent heat. Man's works will be burned up. The entire order of this present world will pass away. We need to understand that this Destruction of the present creation is not annihilation. It's not God putting this creation out of existence and then bringing a new heavens and a new earth ex nihilo, that is out of nothing, from scratch. But the principle that governs what God does with this creation is the principle of resurrection. Resurrection. God will resurrect The creation, as He resurrected our bodies. The melting of the elements in fervent heat will no more annihilate them than the return of our bodies to the dust annihilates our bodies. On that last day, Christ will call our bodies from the dust and all human matter will assemble and our bodies will be raised and marvelously transformed And adapted to heavenly life. On the last day. The day of judgment. God will melt the elements in fervent heat. And from those molten elements. He will call forth the new heavens and the new earth. The creation. Resurrected and marvelously transformed. This earth. And this heaven. Is a part. Of God's eternal purpose. It's not going into the everlasting waste bin. This creation is destined to inherit glory with God's people. And there's biblical proof for that everywhere. For example, Matthew 19 verse 28. Jesus calls the end of the world the regeneration. Using the same word that the Bible uses for our spiritual rebirth. The elements melting in fervent heat and this world dissolving will be its regeneration. From the molten heat will come a newborn world. A new heavens and a new earth. The decisive proof is found in Romans 8.21 where the Apostle Paul writes, The creature, literally the word there is the creation, itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
Creation itself will be delivered into the liberty of the children of God. The creation is not delivered if it is annihilated. The creation is delivered when it is resurrected. And it shares in the liberty of the children of God by being made and becoming the blessed realm in which the children of God will live out life everlasting. That's the wonder of the new heavens and the new earth. God will resurrect the creation, marvelously transform it to be the suitable habitation for life everlasting. And in the new heavens and the new earth, the separation that now exists between heaven and earth will be gone. Heaven and earth will be united. And in the new heavens and the new earth, God will dwell with His people. And that adds another beautiful glimpse to our vision of life everlasting. A world to live in that's perfect. Even this world ravaged by sin and the curse retains so much of it. The beauty that God gave it and created in it. How much more the new heavens and the new earth will show forth the glory of God. A perfect world with no more death, no more decay, no more predation, no more forces of nature in destructive disarray. A perfect creation where righteousness dwells, where peace reigns, a perfect realm of flourishing where indeed the lion will lie down with the lamb. Because there will never again be a hint of violence, a hint of predation, a touch of death or pain, a perfect, most blessed realm, which will be the scene and the setting of life everlasting, which will be the Father's house of many mansions. And now we understand how there can be so many mansions to the Father's house. It's the whole new heavens and new earth. And how much there will be to enjoy, to explore, to experience, and to use and consecrate to the glory of God. We will never exhaust the resources or the joys of that house of many mansions. The best is yet to come. Lift your soul on high. Does. Does because we have the beginning of this life already now. It begins now. After this life I shall inherit perfect salvation. Everlasting life in the world to come. At the moment of my death I shall experience this perfection in my soul. And enjoy glory in the presence of Christ. That's to come, but I have the beginning already now. That's what the catechism says and emphasizes right from the get-go. That since now I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Our stammering words can't adequately describe it, but we feel it, do we not, beloved? This is the feeling of the beginning of everlasting life. When this truth presses itself upon your heart and your soul is lifted on high. That's everlasting life. The foretaste. The beginning of it now. And no one who tastes that beginning now 
will fail to receive the fullness in the world to come. Because that joy, that joy in Christ, comes from only one place. It comes from the Holy Spirit who's worked faith in your heart. And before faith regenerated you and gave you everlasting life. The very life of Christ. The very life that cannot die. That joy that the catechism speaks about. And that joy that we feel as we contemplate these things. That's a joy that springs from the life of Christ in us. Which is the beginning of everlasting life. Which is as a seed which can only grow to maturity and blossom. And eternally bear fruit in the age to come. Let us cherish that feeling of joy and carry it with us. Really, it's something more than just a feeling. Often when we talk about feelings, we speak about how they are fleeting. This one's not fleeting. This one abides with us. That's not to say that at times in our life, when we're going through deep darkness, we're not as sensible of that feeling, of that joy as we are other times. That happens. But we can be confident of this. That joy cannot go away. That joy overcomes all. That joy persists even through the night seasons. And it stays. And it is a joy that is destined to reach its consummate fullness in the world to come. Ultimately, Of all of our stammering words, that's perhaps the best one we can choose to describe life everlasting. It will be joy, pure joy, unending joy, untarnished joy, forevermore, deeper and deeper, richer and richer. Joy. Joy. May God's word. Give us a sweet foretaste of that joy right now. May that joy animate the words of our confession. I believe the life everlasting. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the joy of life everlasting. A joy unlike any other. A joy that we have already now. And a joy that rejoices all the more as we contemplate what is to come. Even while troubles last. May we know. Thou art our eternal home. Bless this word unto all of our hearts this morning. And dismiss us with joy and peace. Amen.